And if you would please take out your copies of God's Word with me this morning and turn to Luke chapter 20. Luke chapter 20. We will be finishing up this wonderful chapter this morning as we have been taking a look at the teachings of Jesus in the temple. And we have been seeing Christ lay out his authority over all aspects of life. So again, we'll be starting in Luke chapter 20. We'll be starting in verse 41. Actually, we'll back up to verse 40. He has silenced the crowd as he begins in verse 40. They no longer dared to ask him any question. But he said to them, how can they say that the Christ is David's son? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. David thus calls him Lord. So how is he his son? And in the hearing of all the people, he said to the disciples, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and love greetings in the marketplace and the best seats in the synagogue and the places of honor at the feast, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box. And he saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. And he said, truly, I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them. For they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God for his word. Let's pray and ask our Lord's blessing on our text today. Oh, Jesus, we have a very penetrating text that is going to search into our hearts. And I pray that we would welcome that, that we would welcome your examination in our life. And that if you see any impure thing, that we would be ready and willing to renounce it to leave it behind and follow after you even more closely. It's in Jesus' name we ask these things. Amen. If you have ever changed jobs or moved to a new town or gotten married, you will notice that there is at least one big change in your life and how it's lived. And that is how you are evaluated. How it is that you are sized up. When I first moved back to Alabama after living in Florida for the better part of 18 years, I was usually asked the same question upon meeting someone for the first time. And that question is, who are you for? You all know what that question was referring to. I did not. I didn't realize it was finding out my college football allegiances. And then I then once learned that that was what the question was about, I learned the University of Florida was not an acceptable answer. (laughs) It was a new way of evaluating me that I had never considered before in moving to a new place. 
And of course, changing states is one thing, but changing jobs has even higher stakes. There are some companies that will reward coloring outside the lines, pushing the envelope and the bold rising to the top. And other companies, this is the exact opposite. Stay within policy, stick to the rules, and you will go far. Figuring out which company you are a part of is essential to finding your paycheck. And if you don't come to their evaluations, then you may find yourself unemployed. But in the end, your employer, as much power as they have, they don't have power over your soul. They are not the ones that are going to be judging you at the end of all things. They are not the ones that will decide where you spend eternity. That's Jesus' job. So to find out how he evaluates is a very critical thing for us to know indeed. We've been talking the last several weeks about Jesus' authority. Really, the whole book has been about that in one way, shape, or form. We've seen that Jesus has power over the spiritual world, the physical world, science, and how the rest of the world works like no one else can can bend the laws of nature to his will, as well as teach authoritatively in synagogues and on mountaintops. We've seen all the way through this book that we are called to account to him. Jesus is not a superhero that comes and does incredible feats and then with an up, up, and away leaves us to our own devices. That's not who Jesus is. Instead, Jesus is a king. The king who has come and looks to us and says, go and sin no more. He has something to say to our life today. And we need reminders of that. That's why we look into this passage. If you see in your outline, it's been tucked into your bulletin. We're going to take a look at two points today. The first is that Jesus is the Lord Messiah. Jesus is the Lord Messiah. Messiah meaning promised one, as we'll see in a moment. And number two is that Jesus rules to a different standard. Jesus rules to a different standard. So let's take a look as we dive in. We've seen various groups trying to come up with ways to trip Jesus up with questions. We've seen folks try to ask these either-or theological questions, either-or governmental questions, and all of them Jesus has answered very well. Well, now Jesus has his own question for them. And this is not a trick question. This is, in fact, the most important question for them to come to an answer to. And he brings up Psalm 110, which is the passage that we see here in verse 42. This is a really key text that shows up about 20 more times over the course of the rest of the New Testament. And is cited as a very strong evidence that Jesus is, in fact, God himself. That he is the son of David, but as other commentators point out, that he is far more than that. Now, in order to find out that's what the psalm is saying, it's a little bit confusing as we approach it. We've got the Lord said to my Lord, two different characters with the same name, and how it all works. So we're going to untangle this as we go along. And if there's a little bit of confusion, don't worry. Once we will, we're going to set these pieces up and they'll all fit together here in just a moment. So the first we're going to need to tackle is, who are these two lords? What are we talking about here? Well, if you were to go and look this passage up in your Bible, in Psalm 110, you would see that the uh, translators have put a 
the first Lord as capital L-O-R-D. Whenever your Bible does that, this is, this is saying that, this is, that in, behind this English word is God's name, which as near as we can tell, we don't know for sure, but as near as we can tell is pronounced Yahweh. And the other Lord points to a, another Hebrew word. The Hebrew word behind that is the word for king or Adonai. So if we were to put this in Hebrew, it would be Yahweh said to my Lord, my Adonai, my king. Now, in setting this up, Jesus is asking a, a kind of a conundrum of a question. He is asking, how can the Christ or the Messiah, the one who's promised to come, be David's son? Now, this strikes us as odd because we don't have the same society that they did at the time. At the time, it was not the job of the father to honor the son. It was the other way around. The son's job was to honor the father. So for David, as the king of Israel, as he was at the time when Psalm 110 was written, he didn't have a boss other than God. He didn't call the pharaoh of Egypt king. He didn't refer to the king of Assyria as his boss. The only lord that he had in his life was God. So for him to say, God, Yahweh, said to my Lord, who could this be referring to? For an ancient audience, for, his, for them to say that his son would be his king would seem very outrageous. How is it that the son is supposed to honor the father? Er. But it's pretty undeniable, as Jesus is showing, the Messiah is David's son. We saw that back in Isaiah. There's a prophecy of the Messiah, be from the root of Jesse, which was David's father. It's clear that he is his son, and Luke mentions this in his genealogy, Luke chapter 3. It's clear that Jesus is David's son and that the Messiah is David's son. But as I mentioned earlier, he's more than that. The reason why David can call his son my Lord is because the Messiah is David's God. He is referring to Jesus being God himself. So, if Jesus is God, then he is the king and the only king. That's what Jesus is trying to drive home to the people. Again, we've been talking about Christ's authority. And here, out of Psalm 110, as we can see, he is Messiah, he is Lord, and he is God. So now the question for us is, who do you call Lord? Or more importantly, who do, how do you live that shows that allegiance? When you are abroad, you can pick an American out anywhere in Europe. Usually be deckled with some sort of American flag or being loud or something that will identify them as being American. You can spot them in a crowd. You can see how they behave and where their allegiances lie. Can people see that in you? Not as an American, but as a Christian. Who we say our Lord is, is one thing, but how we live is something entirely different. In fact, look at what Jesus says. You can go ahead and turn there to John 14. John 14, verse 15. Jesus says... If you love me, you will, what? Keep my commandments. 
That's what Jesus says. The clearest proof that we love and follow after Christ is obedience. Now, again, this is not the way that we get to heaven. We'll never keep these commandments perfectly. But if we have no interest in following after what the king says, can we really call ourselves followers of this king? We should be able to see obedience in our life. Jesus being the king is not just something we sing or something we say or something that we know, but it's something that we believe and that it changes how we live. It's hard to do. It's hard to obey Jesus when our body doesn't want to. It's a lot easier for me to scroll through Facebook than it is to pray. It's discipline. It's obedience. And in fact, it's an obedience that goes all the way down to the heart level. Jesus isn't interested in external religion. This is a believing heart. And that's what we're going to see as we look into our second point, is that Jesus rules to a different standard. It's a different standard. He illustrates this with a bad example and a good example. First, the bad example, which is the scribes. So Jesus, having just laid out that he is Lord and God and Messiah, he then says, To his disciples, beware of the scribes. Now, for us, we've only known the scribes and the Pharisees as the bad guys. Because this is the culture that we've grown up in. We've read the story. We know what they do. So they're the bad guys from from the beginning. But this is really surprising to them. To put it in modern terms, if I was to say, beware the pastor and seminary professors. It would seem odd. Like, well, aren't we supposed to trust them? They're the ones that are spending all the time in the Bible. They're the ones that know it really well. Why should we beware of them? Well, Jesus exposes that. He can look down into the heart and sees what's going on with these men. And what do we see? Why are we supposed to beware of the scribes? Latter part of verse 46. Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes. And love greetings in the marketplace, and the best seats in the synagogue, and the places of honor at feasts. These guys are strutting their stuff. They have a status. Back at that time, having long flowing robes meant that you did not have to do manual labor for your living. Because you wouldn't wear long flowing robes to be a carpenter. Get in your way. It's still that same way today. I remember seeing a cartoon once that says that uh, farmers, since they don't have a casual Friday, they have formal Fridays. And it was a cartoon of these two farmers in tuxedos, or one was in a tractor and the other was trying to load hay. And we look at this and we say, this is absurd, because that's not how people dress. It's the same way here. These guys are walking around in their equivalent of a tuxedo. Look at me. I don't have to be like everyone else. I don't have to work for my living. And of course, because of this special status, they got special greetings. People who were there in the marketplace, they'd have the honor of calling them Dr. So-and-so, Rabbi So-and-so, as they were walking through the streets, hoping maybe to get some of the honor, perhaps, that they had. They would also be given the best seats in the synagogue, right up front, so everyone could see them. Got the best seats in the feasts. It's a place of honor. 
always calling out to themselves. But as teachers of the law, they should have known what it says in Proverbs chapter 6. In fact, turn there with me. It's right next to Psalms. Proverbs chapter 6. And verse 16, look what it says here. Passage that they no doubt have come across often. Proverbs chapter 6, starting in verse 16, says, There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. Really trying to drive home this point. When the Hebrews wants to emphasize something, they say it twice. So this is something that, Jesus, that God really doesn't like. What's the first on the list? Haughty eyes. Another way of saying pride. God hates pride. Have you ever worked with someone who clearly doesn't know what they're doing, but they continue to brag that they do? It's irritating, isn't it? Now, we are not omnicompetent, but we get irritated when someone, especially if it happens to be an expertise that we hold, if someone tries to come in and tell us how to do the job better. Now, imagine how God feels about us when we're strutting our stuff, pretending like we're something bigger. In Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah gets a vision of God. He sees him sitting on his throne. And what does Isaiah say? He doesn't say, wow, I got the honor of being able to see God. I must be really something. No, Isaiah doesn't say that. He says, woe is me. I'm an unclean man amongst an unclean people. Isaiah thought far less of himself once he saw God's glory. So for these scribes to be walking around glorying in themselves shows that they have not seen God. we ever need a lesson in humility, it's not needing to spend more time finding out how we're faulty. It's just look at God and, those, and your faults will become very evident. That's what we see here. These scribes thought that they were very pious people. They bragged of righteousness that they did not possess. It's very clear as we see here in verse 47, it gets worse. Who devour widows' houses and for a pretense, make long prayers. The scribes were not exactly sure how they were able to do this, but in some way, they took advantage of the most vulnerable people in the place, took advantage of widows. The thought was, was that maybe when once a widow had lost um, her primary provider, that the house and her property would come under the care of one of the scribes. And perhaps it was possible that the scribe had worked things financially that would be a blessing and a benefit to him and not to her. And if you ask, well, how is it that someone would be able to do that? I came across one commentator that had pointed out that, uh, that at that time, it was considered that if you were a widow, that you were being punished by God. They probably in some way convinced themselves that they deserved that. Of course, this also shows that they were terribly unfamiliar with the Old Testament, which over and over and over and over says to care for widows and children and that God very deeply cares for widows and children, and that it isn't always a punishment from God, as we could see from the book of Ruth or the first chapter of Samuel. Here, these people clearly had studied the words of God, but it did not penetrate their hearts. 
It did not change them. Now, lest we thank God that we are not like those smug Pharisees, or lest we thank God that we're not like those scribes, it doesn't would do us good to think about how is it this the case with us. It's easy for us to think that because we have the praise of men that we're on the right track. Because everyone tells me that my sermon was nice after Sunday, that I must be in the Lord's will. Just because you have the praise of men, even if it's for a, for a ministry, does not mean it's pleasing to God. Nor does having the scorn of everyone mean that you have the judgment of God either. If I was to preach a sermon that people found helpful, but I did it all for my own pride, God may still use it despite myself, as he often does, but he's not going to be pleased with me. You can also see here in the end of verse 47 that they will receive the greater condemnation. Scribes try to cover up what they're doing, taking advantage of widows by praying for a really long time. Showing off how well they could pray as a means of tricking everyone else to not look too closely. No one gets away with that. Jesus says they will receive a greater condemnation. This should give those of us who are teaching, who are preaching, who are leading, whether that's small groups or Sunday schools or churches. This gives us the opportunity to reflect and say there is a danger for us if we're being hypocritical. If we're saying one thing and doing something else, that should give us pause. This doesn't mean that you're going to be perfect if you're going to be a teacher, that you should be sinless. That's not what I'm saying, because you won't be. The difference is, is what do you do when you do sin? Do you run to the gospel? Do you demonstrate what it means to be a Christian, which is one who is always repenting? Not one who is faking it, but one who says, yes, I am a sinner. And yes, I do need Jesus. That's what we see here at the front. Jesus evaluates differently. People could look to the scribes and say they've got the stoles, they've got the long robes, they've got the long prayers. They must be with God. Jesus says, I look into the heart. Now, we're not able to look into people's hearts, but Jesus does. So we shouldn't be thinking about what's going on in so-and-so's heart. We should be thinking about what's going on in ours. We can't see them. We can see us. We can see that we need help. We need Jesus. But it's not just the sin that Jesus sees. We look into, as we begin chapter 21, We see Jesus looks up and sees the rich putting their gifts into the offering box. He saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. And he said, truly, I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them. For they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. Here, once again... Jesus looks to the heart. So many times we want to look at the rich and famous and say, oh, can you just imagine what God would do if so-and-so became a Christian? Or if we could land this contribution or this person began to tithe or we could get that check. 
We very often take a look at an offering and see how many zeros is following after that. The more zeros, the more pleasing we think it is. And Jesus flips that on his head. He says it's not about the amount of money that you give. It's the amount of heart that you give. A great quote that I got from one of the commentators, his name was Marshall. He put it this way. It says, what matters is not the amount one gives, but the amount one keeps for oneself. That's convicting, isn't it? This isn't to say that the donations that the rich gave were bad. It just gives us a different scale, a different way to evaluate. Isn't the number? It's a level of dedication. As near as we can tell, trying to do the, the currency conversion into modern day, this widow had put in the last dollar that she had. And if we look at a dollar, we think a dollar doesn't do much. And in contemporary finances, we would think, no, it really doesn't. But God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He doesn't really need your money. He wants your heart. It's often demonstrated by what we give. And this widow, though she could only give very little, her contribution outweighed everybody else's combined. Kent Hughes, a Presbyterian pastor, had given the image of a scale and had all these thousands of coins stacked on one side and the two little copper pennies that the widow had on the other side went in favor of the widow. We don't think like that, but we should. We shouldn't devalue the contributions, however small. But it's the heart that's behind that. That's what Jesus sees. Now, as we've seen many times, God doesn't call everyone to give up everything. At least from possessions. But what he does call us to do is to give us his is to give us give him our hearts and have them fully. So they're not ruled by money. So they're not ruled by me time. They're not ruled by anything that we would value that's here on this earth and is temporary. But something that he values. That's what he's looking for. He's looking for a heart. So what do we take away from this passage? What do we see? Well, we can see that Jesus is more than a king. He's also God. He rules over us and he rules differently. It's not what's on the outside, but it's what is on the inside that Jesus looks at. Yes, religious hypocrites using their power to oppress others and exalt themselves may fool people, but they won't and they don't fool God. He will bring his judgment on them, which reminds us not to follow their example. Instead, we dedicate ourselves fully, like this widow did, holding nothing back from our king the Messiah. That's what this is looking at. These are the implications for our lives. It's not what it is on the outside. You can fool a lot of people into congratulating you for your outside life. And you can think, well, I must be doing good because I have the praise of men. No, it's what is the standard that Jesus has. Again, this is not how we get to heaven. It's not by donating our last dollar. That's if we could buy salvation with money. It's not by doing all of these things, but these things are important. 
the way and what Jesus is looking forward to is our heart. That's why he came to die. We have a sinful heart. If we were to look at this thing, we could all say to some degree or another, wow, I'm not nearly committed enough. Thinking that way of myself as I was preparing this passage, I thought, how am I going to preach this to people? I'm still figuring out how to live this myself. Jesus promises that as we walk with him, he is going to shape us more and more into that. That's what we look to. We repent, turning from our sins, put our trust in him and him alone, and he will save us. So there's no point being half-hearted. Jesus can see that. Don't pretend. And if you have been, this is the time. Repent and come to Christ. He'll forgive even decades of hypocrisy. And he can change you from a fake it till you make it Christian to one who is going to be a real Christian and says, yes, I sin. Yes, I have these flaws, but Christ is going to work in me and change you more and more every step of the way. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for how you are working in our lives. We thank you for sending your son to die for us. And more importantly, be raised for us from the dead, showing that he can defeat even death and that he can defeat even our dead hearts. I pray that you would make us alive down to the very heart level so that we could live a life that is pleasing to you. Lord, we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.